0: Pleasure to bring you the very first episode of Amsterdam Academy's podcast. My name is Hannah Huber, and I'll be your host. I want to begin by telling you what we have in store for you. We have an exciting lineup for our very first episode. We'll start out with an overview about what it is we do at Amsterdam Academy, and pay respect to our partners. We'll then have a brief ode to the Maagrebrug, also known as the Skinny Bridge, before taking you to our main feature—an interview with University of Amsterdam. Professor Christian Brewer on city noise and its effects on our well-being. There's a connection to the Mahrbruch here as well. To conclude, we'll give you a hint of what our next episode will be about, leaving you hungry for more. And now I'd like to make an ode to the Mahrabruch, also known as the Skinny Bridge. This famous bridge is just fifty meters away from our headquarters and is a symbolic landmark, not only for tourists, but also for locals. This bridge is a thruway for bikes and scooters traveling west to east and vice versa in Amsterdam. I've seen many wedding photos taking place on this bridge. I've puffed away labor contractions on that bridge. And recently, I even saw a funeral taking place on the bridge. Nine times out of ten, when you walk on the eastern side of the Amstel towards the bridge, on the corner of the Kaisersgracht and the Amstel, you'll see an elderly man with white hair and a walking stick, sitting on his front step. I've passed this man almost every day for the past 10 years, and he always tells the same story to me and to anyone passing by. He starts by asking, do you know which bridge that is? Well, today is his moment of glory, as he can tell you, the listeners, the history of the Mahrbruch. I'm sitting here with a neighbor that I often pass when letting out my dog, and I've never asked your name before. What is your name?
1: name? My name is Mavis. Mavis? Mavis. Mike, Echo, Echo, Uniform, Echo, Sarah. Mavis.
0: Mavis. I see you always sitting here in this beautiful corner in the sunshine. And whenever people go by, whether it be me with or a tourist, which a lot of them are passing by on their way to the Hermitage, you always ask them if they know what bridge that is. And some of them give the right answer. And some of them have no clue. But that is the Magerbrug, the skinny bridge, which we all in this neighborhood, know and love. And you know the history of this, so I'd love for you to tell us in English.
1: Okay, that bridge was uh, built in the 15th, 16th century. And it was built uh, in the order of two ladies who lived there on that side. The ladies with uh, the, the Christian name Mager. They had the name Mager, two ladies, Mager. And they had to pass the river every day by boat. And they didn't want to do that by boat anymore, so they ordered that bridge. And since then it's called the Magere Brug, the, the bridge by Ladies Mager.
0: Now thank you very much. We appreciate the information you give us on the Magere Brug. There's always something going on around the Magere Brug. Recently I saw hordes of people walking past it on a quiet Saturday morning. I had to know what they were doing. This is just one of the many occasions where something's going on. So I'm out on my morning jog on Saturday and there's always something going on. Now, usually on Saturdays, it's calm outside, but today I noticed a huge group of people flowing along the Amstel, all with their backpacks on and their sport gear. The best of the best for outdoor gear. And I know the Dutch love to walk, but usually out in Drenthe, or on the Pieterpalt. But along the Amstel, on a Saturday morning, I've gotta know where these people are walking to, and from which way they came. So I decided to take a little detour here and ask a couple that very question. (laughs) Okay, I caught two walkers here, and they've agreed to answer just a couple questions for me as they're walking, because we have to keep up the heart rate, I'm assuming. Um, What's your name, your first name and where are you coming from and where are you walking to? Uh, My name is Yolanda. Uh, We are participating in a walking tour uh, for 17 kilometers around Amsterdam. Uh, It's because the marathon is tomorrow and this is the walking part. And this is my friend and she asked me to come with me. So we do it together. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, great! And did you train for this? Or you just came out here today and started walking? No, we
1: walk a lot. Yeah, walk
0: a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah, on holidays. Yeah. And, uh, so we really... Yeah, we're trained. And everyone walking here today is part of the same group? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Every- we start <laughs> in Amsterdam South, and we are uh, going through the center of Amsterdam, going back to the South. Okay, and so are you got also out... people who do 20... 20 eight, 28, 28 kilometers. 28, 28 we kilometers. We do the 17, yeah. yeah. And so how far along are you now? Uh five, the five was what uh, Frederiksplein is about seven kilometers, I think. Okay, so quite a ways to go then. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I wish you good luck and thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. bye, bye. Have a good day. <laughs> bye. I'm not the only one who thinks this is the most beautiful spot in Amsterdam, if not all of the Netherlands. The commission putting on the 200-year celebration of the Dutch Republic picked the Magenbrug as the place to hold their final party – This led me to my guest today, sociologist and professor Christian Brewer, who will enlighten us more about such festivities and noise, and its effects on our well-being, so stay tuned. Before our main segment, I want to share with you what Amsterdam Academy is. I'm the founder of Amsterdam Academy, which is a knowledge sharing platform for the international community. By taking contemporary issues, successful new talent, and inspiring stories, Amsterdam Academy makes them accessible in the form of panel discussions, guest speaker lectures, workshops, and seminars. Amsterdam Academy is not about passive listening, it's about active engagement. In this way, Amsterdam Academy aims to help the international community integrate and engage with the local Amsterdam culture. Amsterdam Academy also serves external partners and organizations by offering them a platform for their own knowledge sharing. Examples include authors who just published a book and want to speak about this in front of an audience, or those with a specific skill and or knowledge who want to share this with the public. Furthermore, Amsterdam Academy has their own attractive workshop and meeting room at their headquarters, the Academy, located in central Amsterdam. You can rent out the space for your own workshop or course. The Academy also serves as a co-working space for female entrepreneurs. Examples of events we've held in the past include the Amsterdam housing market, changing media landscapes hosted by the media and new business opportunities with mobile apps. Our upcoming events include Euthanasia, a Historical Perspective, and Photoshop, How, Where, Why. For more details, visit amstramacademy.com. Amsterdam Academy is all about educating and inspiring one another, creating dialogue within the community, and providing a space for that dialogue to happen. Before we get started with our special guest, I want to thank our sponsors and partners who all strive and succeed to enhance the engagement of the international population with the local Amsterdam community. One of our partners is the Thinking Museum. Based in Amsterdam, the Thinking Museum deliver high-quality, innovative learning activities, private tours, and training for museums and cultural organizations. For museums and cultural organizations, they design educational programs and run training workshops for museum educators and teachers. For individuals and family groups, they offer in-depth private museum tours in Amsterdam. For companies, they create and design corporate workshops focusing on developing the skills of critical thinking and creativity using art and historical objects. Thinking Museum is passionate about promoting engagement and curiosity in the museum through the use of visible thinking. You can find them on TripAdvisor or visit ThinkingMuseum.com. We also want to thank our other partner, the Plantage Amsterdam, the cultural garden of Amsterdam, offering an easy-to-navigate website featuring all the Plantage Buurt has to offer, including museums, parks, hotels, restaurants, and special tips. Visit plantageamsterdam.nl for more information. And finally, we want to thank our partner, The Newgate De Denua Port, for their support as well, and tell you about their English-spoken Bible table, Finding Out the Real Secrets of the World's Most Read Book. At the Newgate, they read the Bible as world literature. For them, the book is a source of inspiration. They don't see the Bible as a book of religion, and they have no incentive to convert you or anyone else for that matter. The English Bible table is held every second Wednesday of the month. There's also a Bible table on the fourth Wednesday of the month in Dutch, and their signature program, Seven Years of Plenty, on the third Wednesday of the month, where they read the whole Bible in seven years with journalists, scholars, scientists, and entrepreneurs. Also in Dutch. For more information, please contact Programma Makers at org, or check out their information on Amsterdam Academy's website under the partner page. And without further ado, the main segment of our program. <music> Welcome to the first episode of Amsterdam Academy's podcast. Today I have a very special guest, Professor Christian Brewer from the University of Amsterdam. When talking to acquaintance of mine about my and the neighborhood's frustration surrounding the three-week-long building of an enormous stage on the Brug. For an hour-and-a-half show to celebrate the 200-year anniversary of the Dutch Republic, she immediately mentioned her former Uva professor, Christian Brewer, as a knowledgeable source on the topic of the environment's effects on one's well-being. Having lived in the center city of Amsterdam for over 12 years, the so-called prikkels are taking their toll on my mood, pretty much on a daily basis. Every time I go outside, I'm confronted with a frustrating situation of roads and sidewalks being blocked, Glass containers being empty with crushingly loud sound. Nowhere to throw away my dog's poop bag. And when I do find one of the municipality's trash cans, it's one of those with the two small openings, so I have to prop the poop in and hope for the best. I know, I know, this is all part of city life. People's relationship to their environment, to the space around them, is a fascinating topic and one that may help us make sense of these daily frustrations. These are all small, rather unimportant examples that I just gave you that are part of city life. There are others dealing with much larger and or harmful annoyances and hazards, such as cell phone towers, aircraft, aircraft noise, large scale construction zones. It's an honor and pleasure to be here today with Professor Christian Brewer of the University of Amsterdam, Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences. Christian, we're just going to jump right into the questions here today, if that's all right with you. Can you take us on a journey briefly? How did you go from studying ballet to sociology?
1: Well, ballet or dancing in general is still uh, one of my greatest passions, but I early on figured that uh, I couldn't do this my whole life. You know, most dancers are kind of of the top when they are 25 or 30. And uh, I figured, well, I I, I want something more lasting. And I always had an interest uh, in sociology. You know, actually, there is also a performance part to to the sciences where you have to perform in front of students or colleagues. So there is a kind of uh, theatrical part also. So there is a link.
0: That explains a lot for our audience, and your CV states that your scientific concern is with social origins of problems as diverse as hyperactivity, sadness, aircraft noise, or environmental health risk, particularly that you want to find out if and how the experience of a problem and political processes interact. Can you tell us a bit more about from where this interest stems um, and why you find this field so interesting?
1: Well. It stems from both my training as a sociologist, but also from observations in uh, in everyday life. I guess um, you yourself or many uh, listeners, you think that some things you are bothered about are evident. So take, for example, noise in the street. A lot of people are annoyed by it. But then you... Travel to a different country, and you see that the same amount of noise doesn't doesn't bother people uh, in different cities all over the world. That in Asian cities there's much more noise, but people can can bear it, and they don't they don't bother about it. The same for things like privacy. If you are very much care, if you care about your privacy a lot, you will find that in other locations people are living with ten in a room, and they don't have these privacy concerns. So. Just by observing it, you see that what you yourself regard as a pressing issue might not be a pressing issue to others. That's historically also the case. So, For example, there's a lot of studies about the history of homosexuality. It still is, and it was in the Western world, problematized as a disease not so long ago. It was forbidden in many respects. It was seen as a social problem, where now it's seen as an expression of your sexual identity. So these problematizations, they change a lot, they are different between people, they are different between places, and they are different over time. And that then calls for an an explanation. How come that some situations are experienced as problematic by people and uh, others are not? And my take on that is that we have to look at social processes and especially political life in the sense that what is deemed a problem in politics over time affects people, tells them you are entitled to see something as a problem, and then people are socialized into that, seeing something as a problem, and over time they experience it as such, and they take it for granted that they are entitled to see it as a problem. But it started very often with political decisions to to problematize something in the first place.
0: Um in one of your papers, uh of Opportunities, Feeling Rules and the Rise of Protests against aircraft noise, the role of language is mentioned as being very important. Discourse, resonance, and people. Only certain feelings and arguments are available within a certain discourse. Citizens say aircraft noise is annoying because policymakers don't care. Hearing sound means evaluating policy. This is linked to what you just said. Could this explain why I get so frustrated? Um For example, the small trash cans with the two little holes in them um, and the fact that there's not enough of them because I feel that perhaps the municipality doesn't care about me, a dog-walking citizen, for example. Um, Could it also explain the neighborhood's frustration uh, in Amsterdam Centrum with blocking access to the Mahrbruch surrounding the area for three weeks for a party only lasting an hour and a half uh, for the royal family that... We all feel that um, the commission is putting on the party and they just don't care about us. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us more about the role language plays and how citizens experience their environment? Yeah.
1: Well, the, so there are two issues here. One is the issue of what language does in general and more specifically why we are concerned for, or you are, for example, mentioning the case of the Uh Why is that a problem? Well, again, this is not evident. It... It... Um, it necessitates that people, first of all, see themselves as, as political subjects, that they are entitled to certain rights, that the municipality should listen to them, and that they can exercise some form of control. And they get frustrated because they cannot control it fully. But this starts with a kind of basic democratic Assumption or even promise that you are listened to and that you are entitled to raise your voice. But there is also a kind of basic problem in this democracy that calls p- upon people to be active and to be concerned and to raise their voice, while at the same time, even in this relatively small country of the Netherlands, we cannot uh, listen to all voices and accommodate them all at the same time. So the Brug example is one where several interests clash. And in democracy, there is one mechanism saying, well, we have to weigh these interests uh, interests and balance them. While at the same time, hearing people, inviting them to consultation, informing them about the process, also suggests that all interests are accommodated, which is never the case. So there is, among us you me the listeners we are raised with the expectation that we can exert some influence and when this is not possible that becomes frustrating just imagine a totalitarian regime you would never even think about protesting that because a bridge is blocked for several weeks that would be so unthinkable to do this and even if you would do it you would you would risk your life, maybe. So that's the general point about politics. The more precise thing uh, question then is, how does that work? How do people internalize these assumptions about, I'm an active citizen, I have rights? This goes in large part through language. And when I say language, I don't mean uh, a dictionary or just a piece of paper with words on it. It's symbolic communication. So f- from the moment we are born, even before that, we we hear sound and we gradually learn that there is meaning attached to it. What mommy and puppy mean, and what politician and nation mean. That's gradually uh, built up over time to the extent that you forgot forget that you learned about it in the first place. And all these categories like mommy, puppy, the state, and the doctor, they they are a mixture of personal meaning, what they meant when you first heard about it in your personal life, and institutions. So the doctor is something that is specifically defined in our type of countries in a certain way. Didn't exist in the past, does not exist in all, all over the world. So it's a social construct and at the same time a intimate personal experience. And all this is tied together in words. Words, not, again, in the abstract dictionary sense, but words in use, language in use. And this language in use, that's everywhere. It's what we are doing now, it's social media, it's political communication, it's doctor-patient interaction, and all these words are kind of world-making. They make the world we live in, or we imagine we live in.
0: Thank you. That helps make more sense of our daily uh, happenings going on around us, and in that sense, at least for me, is comforting. Um, the Dutch are known to be big complainers. Your comparative research on aircraft noise between Amsterdam Schiphol and Zurich Airport found that Amsterdam has millions of complaints compared to Zurich's thousands. That's quite a difference. This study mentioned that the Dutch became annoyed when it was politically accepted to be annoyed. Can you explain this process a bit more in detail for us?
1: Yes, I, I try to. So, um, indeed, the Dutch seem to be big complainers in many respects. But um, actually, it's not. That's not typically Dutch. I guess it's typical for many Western liberal liberal democracies to uh, engage people in a way that they don't. Uh, form large masses of uh, angry people, but they, they complain individually. So frustration and anger are kind of individualized in many of our countries. But there are differences. So the difference you point to is concerning aircraft noise, In the Netherlands compared to Zurich, where it was in the time when I did research a couple of years ago, it was much less problematized. And as far as it was problematized in Zurich, it was problematized in a different way. Not as an individual suffering, but as a political problem, how to solve the issue of which community gets how much noise and which community benefits from, from air mobility and so forth. And how does that then actually work? Well, it works through, to start with, selection. Every policy and every politician and every kind of dealing with urgent problems have to make a selection. Do we deal with the noise annoyance first? or, for example, with carbon dioxide or other es- emissions. Especially in the Netherlands, there is a very marked fo- focus on, uh, on noise as the central problem of air mobility. Well, we could doubt that. We could say maybe broader environmental issues are more pressing carbon dioxide, uh, global warming, and so forth. But in the Netherlands, there has been a long tradition of focusing almost solely on noise annoyance. This has not been the case... In Zurich. So the first explanation, the first way it works is selection of the issue. What do you selectively focus on? On the noise, on the carbon dioxide, or in something else? The stench, for example, or I don't know, the use of the land use issue or the property issues. So selection is the first thing. Then the next is once something is selected out, it's easier to pay attention to it. Because the human mind can pay attention to endlessly different stuff. So if something is selected out it's much easier to to pay attention to it. So our first there's a te- selection then our attention goes through it and then especially when it's coupled to interventions like noise's problem and we have a a scheme paying for the noise insulation of your home. Then it comes very close to your personal life. It takes the general definition of the problem, as it were, into your sleeping room, because your sleeping room window can be insulated and so forth. So it's selective, it's directing the attention, and very often political measures are affecting daily life, and they thereby transport it into our daily business.
0: What is bio- citizenship, in a nutshell?
1: In a nutshell, well, that's, uh, it, it, it's a concept to say that in recent times, increasingly, people form identities and form groups, form alliances, form activities around shared bodily traits. So think of cancer activism, which is large all over the world the last 20 years, that would be a kind of raising the issue, demands, claims, defining rights and duties around the idea of we are cancer patients. And this seems very obvious again, but it was not that obvious 25 years ago.
0: Thank you for that examples. And throughout your research, which are the problems that you've examined for example sadness has yielded the most surprising and or interesting results in your opinion when looking at the social origins?
1: I guess I'm still fascinated a lot by the by the issue of sound uh, that there is so much variety in the experience of sound on a on a uh, acoustic level it's all decibels but the same amount of decibels can have so many different meanings and those meanings actually uh, to a large degree determine how we act upon the noise source. So if the same decibel comes from a plane, it's experienced and acted upon differently than it when, when it comes from a hummingbird. A flock of birds can can be as, as noisy in terms of decibels as, as an aircraft, and our reaction to it is widely different. So that's still fascinating in the sense that it shows how important culture and socialization and social and political processes are. It has... Saying this runs the risk of relativizing the sound itself away, as it were. As if there is no sound, it's just culturally constructed meaning. And that's why in my research on sadness, I start with, well, taking more time to take seriously uh, people's suffering and uh, acknowledge uh, what sadness is to people in everyday life. And then only gradually seeing how it is Socially treated, how that affects people's uh, sadness and or uh, depression
0: what direction is political soci- sociology going in the next five years, ten years? Can you even predict:
1: No, we can't, but uh, I guess I have, I have hopes and, and, and ideas about it. and if you mean poli- do you mean political sociology in the sense of our group of political sociologists here in Amsterdam or political sociology as discipline or subdiscipline in general, what do you mean?
0: As a discipline in general. But if you have any insight into specifically here in Amsterdam, I think that'd be interesting for the listeners.
1: Well, as you might know, the sciences, and especially the social sciences, are so diverse. So some people would say political sociology will have to address the issues of globalization and, for example, recent migrations. That will still be there. My take is that uh, we will have to deal the coming 10 to 20 years a lot with what I call emotionalization of political life we see this particularly now in right wing parties but that's that's just one example of the broader trend we see in media we see in public life of emotionalization in the sense of claiming emotions to be authentic, to be guiding, to be, to be valid in combination with or even to the exclusion of uh, rational arguments. And I'm not in favor of just rationalizing or modernizing our thinking and uh, our political life. Emotions are here to stay, and we have to find ways of cultivating them in a way that allows for still a meaningful political and uh, public life.
0: Thank you. And I know just hearing your perspective on things helps me make sense of my daily frustrations and hopefully our listeners as well. Well, thank you so much, Professor Broer, for enlightening us today on the subject. Um, It's much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of Amsterdam Academy's podcast. Please tune in soon. We hope to offer you special interviews with Amsterdammers and interesting stories at least once a month if not every two weeks our next episode is on newfound love in the netherlands we'll share the stories of divorcees in the netherlands that have happy endings so people that came to the netherlands for love it didn't work out but they ended up finding new love tune in next month for some holiday cheer you can find us on itunes under amsterdam academy podcast